Hey, welcome to Friday. Welcome to Week in Review. I'm Bill Radke. It's great to have you along here. This is the time of week when we sit together for an hour and we figure out what happened this week, what it all means. We collect a panel of journalists to do that together. We've got Seattle Times Investigations Editor Jonathan Martin with us. Jonathan, great to see you again. Thank you for the wave. Thank you, Bill. And, 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 and the words. Cairo 7 Government and Politics Reporter Essex Porter, good to have you too. Good to be back, sir. Always in his automobile or somebody's automobile. You could be uh, test driving that thing for all I know. No, it, right? it, it's, it's mine. It's mine. <laughs> okay. okay. Uh, by the way, I can I, I know this because I see uh, all my guests. We're live streaming the show on YouTube and Facebook. And you can join us online by searching for KUOW Public Radio. We also have from the Seattle Gay News, Tacoma Weekly, and the Capitol Hill Seattle blog, contributing writer Renee Ricchetti. Great to see you. Thanks for coming on, Renee. Thank you for having me back on the program. It's a pleasure. How y'all feeling about an inch and a half of rain or so this weekend? How's that sitting with you? <laughs> I'm super excited. I'm ready to get out there, jump in some puddles, get mm. wet. <laughs> yes. I guess we've got uh, uh, very windy conditions coming this weekend, too. It's going to be all stormy, but uh, rain and is going to mean some snow on Mount Rainier. It's been embarrassing to see Mount Rainier naked, so I'm mm-hmm. kind of looking forward to that, uh, to, to, to her covering up, to him covering up. Um, although I did read that the um, it's, not just, it's not just bare rock that I was looking at, that the snow, the lack of snow reveals some dark glacier ice, so it's not quite, as, not quite as bad as it looked. <laughs> you know it actually I, I know summer i shouldn't declare it over right the drought and fire season is not quite over yet is that fair to say absolutely in fact you remember last year in 2020 um it was late september that we had all that smoke so we got to remember that it's not over yet you know it's 2021 is still going mm-hmm. um we had some incredible fires that blew from california and oregon um, and we've had some pretty mild fires in Western Washington this year, thank God. Um, but as we know, like, except for 2019, the Puget Sound Clean Air Agency said that four out of five of the past summers have been the most significant as far as smoke events. So this is something we need to continue to watch. Obviously, we had to express some concern about, um, you know, what's happening with our environment. Summers are drier, warmer weather is lasting longer. So wildfire smoke will likely be more commonplace and a concern for us going forward. You know, I think a lot of us, uh, you know, uh, at our age, we're feeling that, yes, there's going to be climate change, but it's not going to be necessarily so dramatic during our time where we're trying to prevent climate change from being more dramatic decades from now. But it seems very dramatic now. I was driving across the country uh, the week uh, just before Labor Day. The weather was beautiful. Uh, it would have been clear, cloudless skies. But when you got to eastern Washington, uh, Idaho, uh, Wyoming, Colorado, you could just tell there was a lot of wildfire smoke in the air, just a brown haze for that for, for that entire portion of, of the trip. And, you know, it's just that climate change is more immediate than we've been hoping for. Mm-hmm. And we had some smoke at higher altitudes, which led to the most beautiful sunsets I've seen in years. And yeah. I definitely got my camera out and took some pictures of all that. Mm-hmm. And we shouldn't forget, uh, really, you know, the aftermath of those hurricanes and storms in the south uh, and the east coast uh, were devastating there. Again, storms powered by the extra heat uh, in the atmosphere. 
the good news is that the wildfire season in western Washington uh, appears to be over with this rain, as my colleague Evan Bush reported this week. Um, but we really did get uh, we did get pretty lucky in western Washington. On it was not as bad of a smoke season as it certainly was last year. Mm-hmm. Um, I think maybe the uh, the early closure of state lands um, made may have made a difference. Um, lots of fires are caused by by us, um, and we also, frankly, I think, got lucky. Um, the, there's a fair portion of wildfires that also start by lightning. Um, those fires that really choked in Winthrop, so the smoke was like Mordor in uh, mm. in Winthrop and Okanagan was started by wildfires. But um, I think we uh, we may have maybe dodged a bullet uh, at least for now on the on more more smoke being in, being around us. Yeah, the state to public lands commissioner gave some credit to an expanded air firefighting air fleet. But I talked to uh, someone named Vaughn Cork from the Natural Resource Department. He told me mostly it was it was atmospheric flow. We typically get wind, uh, you know, on shore moving in from the ocean. That's not unusual. But he was surprised that we didn't have any significant offshore flow events. You know, we never really had that switch, which usually happens at some point. So that. Not only did that keep the snow, the, the smoke from blowing in from, you know, eastern Washington, Oregon, B.C., we also, the, the fact that the air coming over the ocean is moist, we didn't dry out our western Washington moss and lichens and forest litter, uh, which when it dries out is, is real fuel. So he, he was saying, the way he said was everything lined up just right, and he used the analogy of Swiss cheese that we used to have lots of layers of protection against a smoky summer. Um, we, you know, we've just got a certain amount of fuel. We've got a, we've got a topography helping us out. We've got weather patterns. We've got firefighters, staff, and no layer is perfect. They've got holes in them like Swiss cheese, but if you layer them all on top of each other, those holes almost never line up. But now we're in a situation, the drought and the heat have made it so all those layers are less protective. So, so we've got, Less cheese and more whole. <laughs> Welcome to Puget Sound region. Less cheese, more whole. Um, okay, well, here's, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm also looking forward to jumping in some puddles, just like you, Renee. Um, l- this is a, a kind of a good segue to our, our first big news topic of the week, because I, I, I do think the pandemic is about to get harder just mm-hmm. because it is getting wetter and colder outside. And, uh, and you know, that's, that's just going to make it, make it harder to dodge that virus. And I think a winter surge, you know, is expected, is probably coming. And that means that we're likely to see a strain on our healthcare system that other states have experienced, uh, like Idaho and, you know, other parts of the country, especially where, you know, vaccination and masks are more lax. Yes, that's right. Do you all, have, do you know where your proof of vaccine is? I have it. You do? I have it. I was, uh, I was in, in New purse. York and, uh, I was in New York where they require the, the vaccine uh, proof uh, to go into places, to eat places. They have their own little app. So I have mine on the New York app uh, where you have your driver's license and, uh, and a picture of your vaccine card. Yeah, I, 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 the, um, just showing a picture of the vaccine card seems a little bit strange to me. Um, I am kind of wondering about this vaccine passport um, model that has been talked about. Um, I don't know. Does it seem weird? Like uh, that just seems like kind of like thin proof that you're um, vaccinated. I'm just showing a picture. It's odd. That's that's the criticism of the the, the New York uh, app. It actually is uh, 
pretty thin proof, um, but uh, it does make it convenient for you to, to, to have both your ID and your vaccine card available. Uh, but it's, you know, uh, Washington State apparently is, is working on a different uh, voluntary uh, app uh, with the governor's uh, latest announcement. And it'll be interesting to see how that ties into your statewide vaccine record that you can access online. For those who don't know, I just, sorry, Renee, I just wanted to, I didn't really make it clear that this is, uh, I bring this up because King County is is uh, requiring these, this proof of either either vaccination or a recent negative COVID test starting late October. If you want to go not into a supermarket, but into a, into a restaurant, not outdoor dining, but restaurant, gyms, theaters. So that's coming in late October. Yes, Renee, you were saying. Yeah, a lot of restaurants and clubs here on Capitol Hill and in Seattle have already been requiring uh, proof of vaccination, showing your card. Um, I've had to do it several times. I'm more than happy to do that. And if it like, you know, keeps us from having a surge, um, you know, at least here in Seattle, then I'm more than happy to do it. I certainly don't want to end up in places like Cowlitz County where they're declaring an emergency because their morgues are full um, and their funeral homes are, are, you know, at capacity. So whatever we can do here in Seattle, I'm willing to help. And I hope the rest of the state will follow along because obviously we're seeing in those outlying areas, a lot of people who are not willing to put a mask on or get vaccinated, which is where we're seeing the rise in COVID rates. Mm-hmm. Well, Seattle's people mayor the, thinks that thinks that uh, Renee is in the majority in Seattle, that, that Mayor Durkin doesn't says she doesn't expect restaurants and, you know, concert goers and bar patrons to to revolt against this rule. People are used to before you can go into a bar, you got to show ID. And so part of showing the idea is showing here's, you know, here's something that shows I'm 21 and here's showing that I've got, uh, that I'm vaccinated. So I think if there are problems, we will do what we need to do to protect those businesses who are doing the right thing. Again, I'm really hopeful that we won't have those problems. They've been very infrequent in the city of Seattle. No one should be harassed for doing their job, particularly when their job is doing something, trying to keep everybody else safe. Our reporter, Eilish O'Neill, was talking about this this morning and and saying that um, apparently you're going to see complaint-based enforcement, so probably less enforcement in the areas of King County uh, where... um, where people are not, they're, they're not turning in businesses for not uh, enforcing this. Does that make any, that, that was convoluted, but that, but that in, you know, for example, if, if in Enumclaw, if people are less likely to mind that this restaurant is not checking um, vaccine proof, well, then maybe they're not going to report that business and it's going to be sort of allowed to go on more so than in, in a place like Seattle probably takes a lot of weight off um, restaurant owners and club owners and because instead of having to do a voluntary enforcement and you have occasional person that objects to it now you just say this is the rule I'm enforcing I'm enforcing the rule and have a uniformity about it yeah we do hear from uh, the, the restaurant uh, and hospitality representatives that they feel like restaurants especially have carried too much of the burden and uh, that, you know, they're already doing a, a, a good job that, you know, it's other businesses that need to carry more of the burden of focus always seems to be on restaurants and hospitality. And I do understand there'll be some difference in enforcement between larger restaurants um, and smaller restaurants. And I believe the smaller restaurants have maybe until December to comply. Maybe mm-hmm. Essex or, or Jonathan can elaborate on that. 
Yeah, I think that's right. It gets it's phased in. I think I think you're right about December for smaller restaurants. The the hospitality association said they issued a statement and said COVID spreads everywhere, and any policy to reduce the spread must similarly apply everywhere. Anything less than that amounts to using our industry, which has been the hardest hit by far, as a carrot and stick for the small percentage of people in King County who've been unwilling to be vaccinated. But, you know, on the other hand, uh, there is the fact that people don't eat with masks on. And, and um, you know, it's, I find it much easier to distance in my grocery store, which won't have to comply with this, than in, you know, packed in a theater or people huffing, puffing in a gym uh, or, you know, people in a bar or a restaurant. So there's I'm thinking you know. about why, why it is that Seattle's been in a, basically a COVID bubble. We've had uh, extraordinarily low case rates, very high vaccination rates, um, you know. I think Seattle is, Seattleites are kind of tend to be rule followers. All you have to do is stand at an intersection downtown and see the lack of jaywalkers. Yep. <laughs> to, uh, um, but I also think that, you know, because we have a nation here with a significant outbreak, the image of those ambulances lined up outside of life care of Kirkland was kind yep. of, it was seared on us early on. And it was very real very soon yes. um, for us. Do you think, um, Essex, you know that these state workers, um, uh, the, because all, all state workers now are going to have to, uh, they have a vaccine mandate without the possibility of just showing a negative test. And there's a lawsuit, mostly from state troopers and prison guards, but there's there's some ferry workers, there's a UW Medicine employee, and uh, they are challenging this lawsuit uh, or challenging the, the mandate from the governor. What is their, what is their case, basically? Well, uh, in this particular lawsuit, uh, they're challenging it on a number of, of grounds, a, a number of uh, what they believe are constitutional grounds. Um, they, uh, they say that uh, in contravention of the Washington Constitution, it uh, requires uh, an invasion of the person, an invasion of the citizen's bodily integrity. Uh, you know, that's what they call the, the vaccine. Uh, when I covered this, I spoke with constitutional lawyer Jeff, Jeffrey Needle, and he said that this particular lawsuit, the way uh, it is uh, drafted, he said it's really one of the more poorly drafted constitutional challenges he's seen in a long time. He doesn't, he thinks there might be a way to challenge the mandate, but he doesn't think this lawsuit does a very good job of it because it, it kind of just piles on stuff like uh, the right to assembly and the right to privacy and, and free speech which don't seem to have much to do with vaccines. You know, the other thing he talks about is that it has a lot of plaintiffs. There are, there are the named plaintiffs uh, that you see at the very top of the lawsuit, but there's a total of 90 people who are named in the lawsuit. And then they also say, we may want to amend it to add 30 to 50,000 more people. So, uh, you know, the, the lawsuit, uh, you know, definitely uh, will have its challenges. And the governor has been challenged a lot of times on his COVID emergency proclamations, and he hasn't lost a case in court yet. A lot of the people, go ahead. Jonathan. Really, really, the governor does have pretty broad uh, public health powers. And, you know, granted by the legislature, it should be pointed out that so um, they, you know, he's, he's used these emergency powers, of course, in ways that are you know, controversial. I think we have one of the strictest um, mandates in the country um, for um, vaccination. Um, and, um, you know, that I think if, if the, even if they should prevail in this lawsuit in Walla Walla, it would, of course, head straight to the, US, the state Supreme Court. 
And the state Supreme Court is a pretty liberal composition right now, quite liberal composition, and has been deferential to executive power. So um, not playing lawyer here on radio, but, um, you know, that's that's the read I'm getting. The vast majority of the people, I think, in this lawsuit are probably prison guards. Uh, this was filed in Walla Walla County, and, and Walla Walla State Prison is the largest, um, you know, prison and employer, you know, in Washington State uh, among the government employees. And, um, you know, one thing that concerns me is that, you know, our uh, correction facilities are about 50% um, unvaccinated. A lot of those folks include uh, corrections officers. Um, and so what happens, like, um, you know, I'm concerned that if, you know, October 18th comes the deadline for these folks to get vaccinated and they have to go on unpaid leave or, you know, they get terminated, what does that do for the safety of uh, prisoners in our, you know, corrections facilities? It could lead to unsafe conditions. We could have officers, uh, other corrections officers walking off the job because of those conditions. Um, you know, the same thing is true with other uh, first responders. Uh, we need our state uh, patrol. We need our uh, Seattle police officers. We need them to be able to respond to emergencies, to be there for the public. Um, and what happens, you know, if a unit or a precinct, you know, has an outbreak of COVID, you know, we need them to be there. We need those response times to be low. Um, and if folks aren't willing to take, you know, just the, the, you know, bare minimum of getting vaccinated, I do have sympathy for people have a you know long religious um, objection but you know if you know but unfortunately I don't think that's the vast majority of people and so I'm surprised to see we've had you know almost 5,000 we had 4,799 people apply for an exemption uh, to you know the vaccination requirements so far based on medical or you know religious exemptions but um, you know when it comes to first responders I'm sorry I have I hate to go on a limb here and be unjournalistic, but I, I'm kind of offended um, that they're putting the public health at risk. There is there is a game of political chicken being played here. I mean, the 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 mandate obviously makes sense from a public health perspective, but if you have, um, say, you know, Washington's always struggling to have to to have ferry workers, and we see cancellation of ferry runs often uh, because workers don't show up; they're not Coast Guard certified, you know. When you think about like the workers being willing to say we will not just walk off the job, we'll be fired in mass, and this uh, this date on October 18th. Um, you know, there's it's going to be interesting to see how this plays out because the individual agencies, as far as I understand it, the exemptions granting of exemptions is up to the individual agencies, and then the disciplinary actions as a result of violating the policy is up to the individual agencies. So I think we should watch closely about how how the enforcement of this is actually plays out when the rubber hits the road and these agencies realize they may be suddenly losing five, eight, 10% of their workforce. Yeah. Maybe they'd be more willing to make those accommodations because right now you can get a, you can get an exemption and still lose your job. If your employer says that they can't accommodate you, they can't make your job work uh, in a way that, that keeps people safe. I don't think everybody knows that. No, we can't have officers who aren't willing to go out into the street and interact with the public. Um, desk duty does not work for the vast majority of patrol officers. Why is it that, um, Jonathan, do you know why they're not allowing proof of antibody tests? Is it a way of saying, I, I, I don't want this vaccine, but I have some protection some, because I've had the, uh, I've had the disease. Is that going to be allowed? It is an interesting, I've been thinking about that recently. Um, I always like to think of third way politics and, um, you know, 
the antibody, um, an antibody test that shows you have a level of antibodies that provides protection could be a way around this. The research on antibody tests is not nearly as clear as the vaccine. So um, say that I'm, I'm not advocating for an antibody test without the research behind it. However, um, you know, if, there, if the research does become clearer, um, it would seem to be an antibody levels at a, at, a, at a level that which you actually have protection could be a more effective way of preventing COVID than a recent test. You know, you think about, you can take a test and five minutes later catch COVID and it, it, you know, it incubates in you. So um, I think the research on the antibody test is gonna be interesting to watch in this, um, this mandate uh, conversation. One of the things I'd like to know more about when it comes to the antibody tests is how effective is that compared to the vaccine? If someone actually gets COVID, how effective is that at keeping that person from spreading COVID? Mm -hmm, the mm -hmm. vaccine may be better at keeping you from spreading COVID, not perfect, but, but uh, better. And Governor Inslee gets this question. He's gotten it a couple of times, uh, was asked uh, just last week, and he tells a story of attending a corrections officer's funeral. He says that corrections officer tested negative 30 times mm -hmm. before catching COVID and then ended up dying from COVID. So for him, the tests are, are not nearly effective enough. And that's why that's his explanation for why testing is not part of the choice. We've got to we've got to move on here with the week in review, just in case you're just joining us. That that test uh, is one of the one of the uh, things you can show in King County starting late next month. You can show a test within a negative COVID test within 72 hours to get into a bar, a restaurant, a, a show, a theater, a gym, and um, and that starts October 25th. Finally, uh, just uh, we're what something we're watching is that the highest, I believe he's the highest paid employee Correct. in the state of Washington, the head football coach of the Washington State Cougars. The Cougars don't know if they're going to need a head football coach soon because he has all he has said is that he's not going to get the vaccine. He won't say why. He said he's going to comply, but he didn't say he's going to comply by getting a shot. So I don't know if he's going to get an exemption. I don't know if he's going to get an accommodation, but that's a, 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 a football. One, one note that a lot of Cougar fans, I'm sure, will be watching. We'll see if we find something out before the Apple Cup. Okay, we, we're going to roll on in just a moment here with the Week in Review with Jonathan Martin and Essex Porter and Renee Ricchetti. We are on Facebook and YouTube. You can search KOW Public Radio and watch the show there. We'll be right back. This is Bill Radke. I'm glad you're listening. You, along with Chris Sombrowski of Everett, can watch the show on YouTube or Facebook uh, assuming that Chris has uh, excellent YouTube streaming capability in space. This is a, a data engineer from Everett who uh, is, is orbiting Earth right now. Uh, Elon, uh, Elon Musk's company, SpaceX, uh, actually got a, you know, Elon Musk is a billionaire, but his company got another billionaire to pay for this. It's a, mm -hmm. it's a, a charity event. The founder of a payments processing company paid a, an estimated $100 million, we don't know, uh, and they also held a lottery to see who gets to go up. So this Everett data manager, uh, Chris Sombrowski, actually lost the lottery, but a college buddy mm -hmm. of his won the lottery and gave him the ticket. Maybe sold it's him the ticket. Great to have friends like that, for sure. <laughs> yeah, you know, lean on me. If, there's, if, if I have something I can do, if I have a ticket to space, just call yeah. me. You got it. Um, 
So uh, yeah, how did how did first of all just I'm curious how you uh, you reacted to the news? What'd you think of that? Are you headed in space when you can? I would be willing to go to space. I'm looking for a billionaire to sponsor me. But look, I heard that there's a lot of things involved. I heard that they um, climbed Mount Rainier in May. Uh, they involved you know several hours of studies and simulations. They had a zero gravity airplane flight which is obviously nausea inducing. Mm -hmm. uh, they had centrifuge sessions. They had high G jet maneuvers. After hearing all that, I was like, maybe <laughs> I should rethink my plan. Okay, fair enough. So the, this is the uh, first time the Earth has been orbited by a crew of all civilians, as they say, no professional astronauts. The pilot is a geology professor, but the, apparently the spacecraft essentially navigates itself. Now, a downside yeah. is they are exposed to more radiation than the International Space Station astronauts, mm -hmm. so they're, uh, they're definitely monitoring their health. But if all goes well, they splash down on Saturday, and in January, SpaceX is supposed to send four more people, possibly Renee, if you can get over your objections, yes, four please. more people to the International Space Station, and Tom Cruise is scheduled to fly to the station for a movie project uh, next Interesting. year. Interesting. Yeah. yeah. Interesting. Hmm. So, and well, by the way... Jeff, Jeff Bezos said a nice tweet. They've had, he's had some uh, snark with mm -hmm. Elon Musk, but Jeff Bezos uh, congratulated them, said it's another step towards a future where space is accessible to all of us. Um, okay, so uh, let's, let's get back to the, the earthly news, as we do here on the Week in Review. We've got a new poll out from a, a very uh, well-respected longtime Seattle pollster showing that Bruce Harrell is leading the Seattle mayoral race among likely voters. Out of 400 likely voters, 42% said they now, for now, plan to vote for Harrell. 27% uh, say they plan to vote for City Council President Lorena Gonzalez, but 24% are still undecided, and the polls got, you know, an error rate, plus or minus five percentage points, and the election is, what is it, seven weeks away or so, November 3rd. So I, I respect this pollster, Stuart, El Stuart Elway. I also find myself taking election polls less seriously than I used to. I'm curious what my journalist friends hear. What, what do you think of this poll? What does it say to you? Well, the first thing I'd remind you of is that, that well, people get their ballots in the mail, I think, on the 15th of October. So it's it's not it's not a full seven weeks away. People can mm -hmm. start voting. Oh, yeah. Really in, in Thank less, you. In less than a month. <laughs> yes. Yes. Yeah. Excellent point. Yeah. Thanks. Um, and it looks like we have a couple of contra contrasting polls here. Um, you know, the, the Crosscut Elway poll uh, gives Bruce Harrell a clear lead. Uh, and, and pretty quickly, uh, the Gonzalez campaign released a a poll and really just one page of their poll uh, showing that the race was tied at, uh, at 45% each. Um, you know, that seems to imply there's almost nobody undecided, which isn't usually, I think, the case at this, uh, at this early stage. Um, you know, I, I suspect there are far more people uh, uh, who are still really undecided or, or not quite completely decided in this race. Yeah, I'm glad um, Essex brought up the Gonzalez poll uh, because I do believe that there are a great number of progressive voters who have yet to make a decision. Um, and also, I think these are not the kind of people, at least the people I know, uh, who participate in polls. They don't take calls from block numbers or, you know, they believe they're trying to be sold something, so they just hang up the phone. <laughs> so um, 
but um, you know, I'm really looking forward to this race. I think it's going to be a real referendum on the city of Seattle um, and the values of the voters. I know there was a lot of people who were concerned about the protest, you know, COVID-19, and obviously uh, the mandates as well as homelessness. And I think some of those people want to get back to the way things they perceive things were, even if those things don't work for a lot of people here in Seattle, including those that are homeless um, who are concerned about biased policing. But um, so I think there is a shift to more conservative values, uh, more traditional values. And I think uh, Bruce Harrell represents that candidate those people would be most attracted to. Um, yeah, um, I, I feel like this race is a little bit of a deja vu from 2019, where you had a slate of more sort of pragmatic progressives um, and then of and a slate of more ideological progressives. And um, that, according to the campaign consultant I've talked to, they, the, the, the race was tilting, um, particularly the, the Shama Sawan, Egan Ogoyan race in Capitol Hill, was tilted more towards a pragmatic kind of a, uh, come over a centrist approach. But then Amazon, remember, dropped in that big pile of money and it became a referendum basically on people hating, hating big, big tech. Mm. Um, absent, we don't have that this, this time around. The Chamber of Commerce actually um, folded up its, um, its pack. Um, uh, and the other factor we have in this race is that unlike 2019, you really have an increase in gun violence. There is a genuine concern about um, about violence. In addition to that, the number of tents on the street, I believe our Project Homeless teams reported, it increased 50% during the pandemic. So homelessness was always visible in Seattle, but it became much more so in the pandemic. So if you're thinking about a referendum about the status quo, where Seattle has leaned progressively more and further and further left um, over the past, you know, since about 2013 or so, um, it would seem to be... Um, you know, leaning more towards a, the sort of the pragmatic, more centrist um, candidates. I think Bruce Harrell sort of fashioned himself in Sarah Nelson in the citywide council race, um, and maybe also in the city attorney's race. Although, and I'm not sure how progressive Ann Davidson is. But that said, that we also have the history, recent history in Seattle, going the opposite direction. So um, this is going to be a really fascinating race to to, to watch. And uh, Jonathan mentioned the gun violence. And we got to remember because of the pandemic, more people have been buying guns. So there are more guns on the streets than there were previous. And so that is leading to more gun violence and gun deaths. Um, obviously in Seattle, we've seen, unfortunately, a very uh, one after another after another, uh, which is obviously very alarming. And I would imagine very alarming to the voters. So I definitely think that is playing a role in this race. You know, I, I, would, I would also say though that uh the the progressives in this race come with you know strong bases and strong grassroots uh campaigns uh you know and and a nikita oliver who is well known uh and will have a strong campaign is going to bring out a lot of voters who are not going to be bruce harrell voters mm -hmm. and and the democracy vouchers in play in this race also um probably benefits the more populist candidates like uh, like nikita oliver um, where you get, um, you know, an ability to the ability to fundraise um, with an army of volunteers. So that has really been a game changer for Seattle politics as well. I knew I was forgetting something. Those democracy vouchers. I got to get those in. Right. Uh, so 
All right, we'll we'll keep following that the election races. I wonder out here outside of Seattle in uh, to DC, I wonder did anyone read that BuzzFeed piece about Seattle's Congress member Pramila Jayapal uh, supposedly being very hard on her employees. I wonder what you uh Jonathan you're nodding. What did you what did you think of that piece? Well, I, I have the pleasure of of directing the investigations team for the Seattle Times and I tell you if we were going to run that, we would have done a lot more sourcing. Um the Anonymous sourcing um, is um, is interesting, but you need more sources for every anonymous source you have. Um, the framing of it, of course, is interesting. It's basically is Pramila Jayapal a hypocrite um, advocating for workers in the campaign and on the floor of the House, um, but behind doors she's um, she's a terrible boss. Um, on the other hand, you know Maria Cantwell has had this reputation for a number of years, really run through staff and. It feels like the, the quality of the treatment of staff is a little bit of an inside baseball kind of thing. It hasn't, it's not the kind of thing that a voter is going to vote on. Um, but I think if, we'll, if we see the turnover in Jayapal's office continuing to be extraordinarily high, um, then um, that might be um, something more for the future. Yeah, I agree with Jonathan here 100%. I know that she's one of the highest profile progressives in Congress. She's chair of the Congressional Progressive Caucus. So she is gonna be sensitive to this and I expect we'll see some minor changes in her office. However, you know, DC uh, is known as, you know, providing tough conditions and low pay uh, in these kind of uh, positions. And so when BuzzFeed, you know, interviewed all these anonymous uh, staffers, I honestly don't think it'll damage her political uh, trajectory at all. In fact, in 2020, you know, she won by 83% of the vote and I expect to see her uh, opponent in the next election Obviously bring this up, but I don't think it's going to have any impact on the election overall. Uh, in, in that uh, BuzzFeed story, they they uh, quote Jayapal's chief of staff uh, on the record. And, and the chief of staff makes a point about uh, this being the kind of sexist microscope that women leaders can be put under. Uh, mm -hmm. I, I, I do think it still matters how uh, advocates for workers treat their own employees and, and we've really yet to hear from Representative Jayapal herself on that. Uh, you know, I and other reporters have asked, and we would still like to hear from her. Yeah, well, I suppose if, um, if you are, Jonathan used the word hypocrite. Um, I know these don't line up, you know, your, your, your gender, race, your identity, doesn't, it doesn't necessarily line up with how progressive you are. But if, if someone is, is seen as... Um, very much on the on the worker's side, and then they are said to be a tough boss. I wonder if it opens up that for from a media point of view, it makes the the story that much more interesting enough to run with it. That that uh, you're going to be prone to the hypocrite uh, lead that makes that that gets this sent around. Sure, um, I think that Renee's point too about. DC being a tough place to work, low pay, long hours, high pressure. And frankly, we know many politicians who are not good bosses. <laughs> Winning office and being a good manager are, not, are two very different things. Um, so I kind of wondered too, you know, we, you know, we see that the uh, millennial generation has a, um, has a, a different attitude about um, what has been tolerated in previous generations in the workplace. I wonder if there might be a little bit of a sort of a generational um, sort of reckoning that's coming with um, younger staff. And frankly, it's probably a lot of younger staff because they're low paid 
um, just not willing to be tolerated, tolerate the BS that has historically come with these jobs. Yeah, that's, pro that's probably, frankly, one thing to ad admire uh, in them and the younger staff of a lot of different organizations, including news organizations, not being uh, willing to tolerate some of the things that uh, some of us with a little more gray hair had tolerated in the past. I've definitely had that discussion. I remember being, I started at KUOW when I was in college, and I, and I remember being in tears uh, uh, you know, when the news director would walk away after just basically saying, what the hell is this copy? This story makes no <laughs> sense. You know, all that kind of stuff. And I would be fighting. There. Yeah. And I'd be fighting back tears. And I never, I again, and I have mixed feelings about it, sort of for better and for worse. I didn't think of it as bad boss. And I didn't think of it as terrible me. I, I have no self-esteem either. I just thought, I just was frustrated. Like, why am I not getting this? And I'm not good, and I better get. I better be. You know, it should be better next time. So I have. I have mixed feelings about what about the effect that 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 kind of. You know, she didn't strike me, my boss. She just was extreme. She didn't even yell. These days, man, if someone has it speaks sternly, we say that they yelled, and if they yelled, we say they screamed. And and I, I don't remember it that way. it seemed fair to me, but but man, it was hard. You know, the the dues pain thing. Um, has um, uh, for for DC, you know, one of the sort of the the sort of career path for DC uh, for Hill staffers is that you tolerate the bad work conditions and low pay for a few years, and then you cash out and go take a nice paying job, and and uh, based on your your experience on the Hill, um, so that's been one of the sort of the models. But you know, I I I, I genuinely admire the more finely tuned moral compass of younger staffers. It's certainly yeah. younger people in the, in the workplace. It's certainly, uh, that's a direct through line to the Me Too movement. Um, yeah. You know, there, it would not, that was, that was, that was women saying what was been tolerated in the past is just not tolerable now. Mm -hmm. um, and so kudos. Agreed. I was used to it. And, and there's a, prof there's a, there's a better also professional way to handle that situation. So um, mm -hmm. yeah, glad, glad we, we're, 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 we keep thinking this through. Um, well, the ballots get mailed out to voters in mid-October, as we said, so we'll keep watching the, uh, this uh, election develop with uh, Cairo 7 Politics and government reporter Essex Porter, Seattle Times Investigations Editor Jonathan Martin, with the Seattle Gay News, Tacoma Weekly, and the Capitol Hill Seattle blog. Hardworking contributing writer Renee Ricchetti is with us. We are streaming the show on uh, Facebook and YouTube, and we're going to be right back and continue with more of the Week in Review. Don't go away. This is Bill Radke. Good to have you along with us. We are figuring out what happened this week and what it all means. The Seattle City Council's writing its budget, which includes how much to pay police officers next year. About 250 officers have left the department in the past year and a half. They quit or retired, and that leaves extra money in the budget, about $15 million dollars. How much of that should go toward more hiring and retention bonuses over time for the police department? How much should be shifted away from the police department to other community safety groups and other nonprofits and, and organizations? Well, the city council took public comment over Zoom this week. This is Sylvie Reynolds from Green Lake saying she wants to see more police in town. This place is lawless. We have an open drug market, people getting shot very close to an elementary school during the day. And so I 
support that. You all support this bill. Thank you. But most of the commenters opposed using $3 million for hiring bonuses and retention. This is Annette Clapstein. I have lived in or near Seattle for most of the past 50 years, and throughout that time, the Seattle Police Department has been brutal and racist. No reforms have worked, and they have only gotten worse. In the end, the city council voted to spend about $10 million of those $15 million extra dollars on police. No money for hiring bonuses. Overtime is cut in half. The city will spend the other $5 million for non-SPD uses, including the Regional Peacekeepers Collective to prevent gun violence, community safety programs proposed by local nonprofits, expanding evidence storage. So um, I'll start with you, Essex, your take on the decision and the, uh, the debate this week. You know, I, I listened to that hearing. I, I covered it, um, you know, and uh, I managed to get through uh, about a half hour of public testimony. And I never heard of the woman uh, from from Green Lake. Uh, you know, that te- that public testimony uh, was uh, was just overwhelmingly uh, against the idea of providing uh, money for uh, retention bonuses or, or recruitment bonuses. Now, Yes, there's there's clearly uh, a large swath of public that would like to see that. They just didn't call into the hearing. Uh, that that was a, a rare take there uh, that you were able to play. Uh, even though a divided council voted against uh, the hiring and, and retention bonuses, the council con- consistently points out that they have given the Seattle Police Department all of the money it has asked for this year to hire as many people as the department believes it can hire this year. So it's not like the hire replacement officers, but they were unwilling to go uh, further with recruitment uh, or retention bonuses. Yeah, and the SPD will have plenty of money for community service officers and crime prevention coordinators, as well as the staff they need to speed up hiring. So non-police funding includes money for community organizations working to reduce crime as well. So this is definitely a shift uh, from the way we've done business in the past um, I think the majority of people in Seattle seem to support that. Obviously, the council vote was five to four on uh, Peterson's proposal, but um, it's clear that the city is looking to go a different direction. I think um, we've seen that in some of the efforts that the mayor's made um, in trying to uh, reduce uh, the amount of uh, police on the streets when it comes to nonviolent, uh, you know, instances, you know, issues. The, um, the alternative to policing um, funding has gone up significantly, um, particularly since the, the, um, the protests last summer. Um, but you see right now we're in kind of this bad middle place where the number of officers is dropping. Um, remember, just a few years ago, there was the city council had funded 1,500 sworn officers. Um, we never got there, and I think we're down to about 1,300 now. Um, but if you think about it, the need for officers is partly what is the needs of your responses. And one of the key things we're hearing from people is that the, the, the sort of the, cri- the mental health crises on the street are not being responded to. You had really good reporting this week from David Croman and Crosscut and my colleague Danny Westneat had a good call about the, the difficulty of running a business in uh, Pioneer Square. Um, you know, the, the, from the Crosscut piece, you know, the involuntary commitments are down 45% in August from uh, a historic, from the, from the norm. So people are not being um, sent to hospital for emergency psychiatric treatment. The idea would be that you would have an alternative response, people non-sworn officers responding. The city council has, has said they're doing that, 
but their pilot program is $700,000, which is just like, it's kind of budget dust for uh, a, a budget as large as the city council, I mean, the city, the city has. So we are not seeing the traditional response um, because, in part because of the, um, you know, the, the exodus of officers and the difficulty of hiring. And you're not seeing really the alternative um, being stood up either. So when people are saying they're frustrated on the streets, I think this really goes back to like a very kind of poor kind of whiplash planning by the city council. Jonathan, why do you think that is, that the council wouldn't be um, standing up a more robust uh, alternative program and more quickly before they decide how well that program is working and what to do about policing? That is a great question. That is the question to ask, Bill. Um, I'm not I'm not sure. Um, I think that it's probably very hard to stand up one of these programs. It takes a lot of planning and effort. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the the. The, the Black Lives Matter protests last summer um, clearly like changed the direction of, of policing in Seattle. Um, credit to the, the folks who were out on the street. Um, but if you're going to take this hard change towards a more alternative policing model, um, it would really behoove the city to, to act with, with, with haste quickly. You, you have not seen them do that uh, nearly the scale they need to on the homelessness crisis. Um, and I feel like this is just sort of more of the more of the same of um, uh, of um, posturing, but poor planning for the consequences. I think there's also yeah. just some practical logistics uh, that are playing a role in this. Uh, you know, apparently there is a shortage of mental health workers. There's a shortage mm-hmm. of the kind of people who can do this kind of work. You you can't go out and and hire a batch of them in a week. And uh, so it's it's difficult for the city to stand up alternatives as quickly as as you might reduce or refocus the the the, the police department. Yeah, Lisa Herbold announced her uh, triage one program, which hopefully will divert calls away from the police. Obviously, the fire department has its health one, which is tries to handle less acute calls. Um, obviously, it's going to take time to get these things up to make them robust. Um, I do want to mention, though, that, you know, a lot of the 200 officers that are leaving the department are simply retiring, you know, Um, and unfortunately, a lot of young people these days don't want to join the police force for one reason or another. Um, So, you know, there is basically a heavy hill ahead, you know, for those that are trying to recruit for the Seattle Police Department. Um, So good luck to them. Yes, yes, indeed. Uh, You're listening to Week in Review on KUOW. We are... Coming toward the end of our uh, program, um, I, I saw some, actually I, I hadn't heard this yet, Renee, until you pointed it out to me that a Seattleite is the new uh, co-host of Jeopardy till the end of the year. Yes, Ken how Jennings. Do you feel about, yeah, how do you feel about that? <laughs> well, you know, congratulations to Ken Jennings. I mean, uh, he won like 74 uh, games. I mean, he's the, the biggest winner on the show. So clearly, uh, I'm glad to see him. You know, he knows what he's doing. He knows how to... Uh, take the show forward, especially with all the controversy that has been surrounding the hosts of the show, um, you know, and their executive producer. Um, Although Ken has I, made Ken has also made some jokes that have annoyed some people. He has. He has. some. And I, and I know I know Ken a little as a disclosure. I know him a little bit socially. I really like him. But just pointing that out. Yes. Go on, Renee. Plus, he's a he's a co-host. He's a temporary yes. co-host. Yes. Right. Yeah. And He'll just take right. them to, to the end of the year. So that's it. Yeah. Um, 
However, I was team LeVar Burton, <laughs> so I'm a little disappointed, and apparently he may not be in the running for the permanent job. He did tell Trevor Noah on The Daily Show on Thursday that he doesn't plan um, to seek it, that he has kind of moved past that. So that's mm. disappointing to me, but, you know, I love Jeopardy, so I'll continue to watch. You got a socially distanced high five from Essex there. <laughs> Great. <laughs> on, was that about LeVar Burton? That was about LeVar Le- Le- Burton. Yeah. Uh, you know, uh, I-, I think he needs to be persuaded to reconsider. I think he would be also be a great co-host uh, of, of Jeopardy. Mm-hmm. But I, I keep hearing about the, the the nerd credentials. You know, Ken Jennings is a is a, a, a trivia nerd and uh, Bialik has nerd credentials. But was I never thought of Alex Trebek as nerdy. I just thought he mm-hmm. was a pro- professional, affable game show host. He wasn't really the, the star, at least to me. I just took him. I'm not used to all this debate over who the game, who the host should be. I thought of the host as so neutral and just kind of wallpaper in a nice way. I don't think Alex Trebek was you know, back there writing questions. You know, Clearly, there's a whole team of people behind these folks. So I don't think they need to be a nerd necessarily and know all these facts you know, in their brain. Yeah. Just be, be, be a game show host. <laughs> exactly. All right. Well, uh, anything anything else making you smile before we go? I always like to leave on a smile. Jonathan, anything, uh, any happy news this week? Well, returning to a theme I've hit before and we can review, it's fresh hop beer season. The, uh-huh. the uh, freshly cut hops are making their way over the over the Cascades right now. And Did they get enough water? Did they get enough rain? Are they okay? Sounds like it is a, it's a decent hop season. Um, okay. So um, that'll be... Uh, that's a that's a uniquely Northwest thing. We're the hop capital of the country, and having this ability to have these fresh fresh hop beers uh, is a real treasure of fall. I would like to have a beer with each of you in person one of these days. Uh, for now, <laughs> it is what it too. is, and uh, we it's uh, it's time to go. We've been uh, reviewing the news of the week with Renee Ricchetti from Seattle Gay News, Tacoma Weekly, and the Capitol Hill Seattle blog, and also with Cairo 7's government and politics reporter, Essex Porter, and Seattle Times investigations editor, Jonathan Martin. It's been a real pleasure being with you. You, you made me smarter about what's going on in this town, and thanks a lot, and we'll, let's do this again soon. Have a good weekend, everybody. Bye, everyone. Yeah, enjoy the enjoy the rain. Enjoy all of it. Good weekend. And thank you to our co-workers here, Tio Popescu and Juan Pablo Chiquiza, who make it possible that we can uh, do our social media and live streaming. We've got our show producers, Alec Cowan and Sarah Leibovitz. And I'm your host, Bill Radke. Looking forward to uh, another Week in Review a week from now. See you then. This is Bill Radke. If you didn't happen to tune in at the exact right time and you missed something, you didn't really miss it because you could always hear our Week in Review podcast available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, all your usual places. And let's not limit this to your ears. We live stream the show on YouTube and Facebook. So just go there and search KOW Public Radio and you can watch us live on Fridays or watch old episodes of me and my guests being in little boxes on your screen. See you then.